0: Well today, it's, it's hard to believe. We've come to the final few verses uh, in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, the Greek city in Philippi. And as you look at these final few verses, you're probably thinking, how in the world can somebody preach an entire sermon off of that? Well, uh, there's a lot to get here, uh, to see here, and I hope that you will be edified by what we have to see here and in a sermon I've entitled uh, The Circle of Christian Love. And so if you found your place, Uh, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, uh, verses 21 through 23. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for um, how You've been so gracious to us in giving us Your Word. This Word that we absolutely need to have, Lord, to be sustained, to, to know who You are in all of Your glory, to be uh, confronted with this, uh, the, glory, the glorious riches of, of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray, Father, that you would be, be with us this morning. Give us ears to hear what you had to say in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I, kept, I have to confess that uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this particular passage of Scripture, and the reason I'm very excited about this, uh, this portion of Scripture here is because of what it has to say about the church. And now, as you think about that, and you maybe think, "Well, what is he talking about?" Hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to shed light on why I'm so excited about it. But as you think about the, the word church, the word church itself, what are some things that come to your mind? You think about the word church. Maybe, maybe you think about, "Well, church." That's a, I think about singing these glorious hymns and th- singing wonderful songs to the praise of the Lord. Uh, I think about um, uh, and getting to hear a, a sermon from this guy up here. And uh, I, I think about all of those wonderful things. I think about the fellowship that we have in the church. Uh, I think about uh, the, the building, and I think about, um, I think about the, the institution of the church, the church as an organization. For example, we are a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, so we have a certain uh, structure and church government. And so we can think of all those things, and all those things are certainly appropriate and are certainly a part of what we understand about this word church and the importance of why churches or, or the reason why church is so important but we can't just stop there in terms of worship and in terms of the church's institution and organization rather we also must understand as I think the scriptures teach and as we see and we talk about theologically in terms of how the church is also an organism that is by God's sovereign grace believers now are in union with the resurrected and ascended Christ. And as as Brother Timothy so helpfully highlighted for us, not only are we in union with the person of the resurrected and ascended Christ, we are also now in a spiritual union with our brothers and sisters from all over the world now. We are being bonded together as the body of Christ. Believers who are here locally, believers believers that are sitting right next to you, believers who are in churches around the world, we are all now bonded together with this affectionate love that we have in Christ. And this bond of love and affection that we have in Christ should really mark our attitude toward all those who are in Christ, who, under, who, are, who, are, uh, who are believers. This is the attitude that should mark us, this, this attitude of The fact that we're in union with Christ, we're in union with each other, and so we have this deep, affectionate love for one another. And I think that really comes into view in our passage today. The Apostle Paul, you know, he's closing out this letter that he's written to this church in Philippi, this Greek city in Philippi, this poor church in Philippi that was enduring so many distressful things. They were enduring persecution, there was disunity from within the church that Paul wanted to one of them to address so many things. And as we look at these, these greetings here, it's really easy to kind of just breeze by this. Okay, greet every, every Satan Christ Jesus and blah, blah, blah. Let me go on to, the, to Colossians now and read Colossians. Well, we do that, we would be really doing a great disservice here to ourselves and, of course, to God's Word because there's a lot to see here about our identity in Christ and about this love that we have in christ or ought to have in christ toward one another and this idea of what i'll call connectionalism that should be found among christians even those from different congregations separated by many miles different ethnic and cultural backgrounds and languages because you see here that the Philippians are in greece and then you, you, paul's in rome and there's believers in rome so different cultures Different. I'm sure there was a common language at the time, but also they have different customs. And yet they are all united in Christ. They have this common bond. The common bond is Christ. They are united in Him, and they are in need of the sustaining grace of Christ. And so the main idea of our passage this morning is this, is that regardless of where they are, regardless of where they are, believers have an intimate bond in Christ and are sustained by the grace of Christ. Regardless of where you are, we are united in Christ, we have an intimate bond in Christ and are sustained by the grace of Christ. And so three, four things actually to see here this morning, so you get a bonus point this morning. And... uh, And uh, the four points here, the first point we're going to look at here is our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ. And this comes out in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul describes believers with two words. He calls them saints. Greet every saint. And in verse 22, uh, all the saints greet you. And then in verse, uh, verse 21, he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. So there's two terms that Paul uses to talk about Christians he calls them saints and he calls them believers and this word saints here is one we've seen already in chapter 1 when Paul referred to the church as saints and slaves of Christ and we looked back looked at that the very first sermon we preached here but here Paul goes back to that and we want to look at this first thing here this first word saints which speaks to our status before God now when we hear the word "saint." The temptation for us is to think of somebody who's a, a really good person, a really compassionate person, somebody who's exceedingly nice. You know, isn't isn't little Johnny? Uh, he's just a little saint. <laughs> you got to say it because Johnny's always little Johnny's always bad. Little Johnny is such a saint. <laughs> it is funny, right? <laughs> Little Johnny, he's such a saint. That's how we, we think of the word saint. It's, it's a really good person. Or in Roman Catholic theology, they have a mistaken view here in terms of how they under, understand saint. And they talk about saints. A saint is a Christian who has lived, quote, a heroically virtuous life. A heroically virtuous life. And then they have performed some miracle. And so with those things being true, now they are canonized as saints. They are in this special privileged position now. And now you actually get to pray to these saints because they're, they're such, they've, they've risen to such this, this high level. That's in contradiction to what the scriptures teach, how there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so to get to God, to pray to God, you don't pray to a dead Christian. You pray to God himself, directly to God. Why? Because you're in union with the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, it's interesting, though, when we think about this heroically virtuous life, they are onto something when they speak that way because the word saint actually means, and we'll get a little lesson here. I'm not an expert in the languages, even though I had to take them in seminary and so on. Uh, but the Greek word here is very important for us to understand. And I'm going to say what the Greek word is, just so you hear it. And the Greek word is hagias, and it simply means set apart, it means holy. Very interesting. In Isaiah chapter six, we saw Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty. In Isaiah chapter six, the angels are flying about the throne. Isaiah is there. He sees the Lord seated on the throne, and the angels are crying out. What are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy. Now the Greek translation of the Hebrew text there says, "Hagias, Hagias, Hagias. Holy, holy, holy." Is the Lord God Almighty the holiness of God, the infinite, uh, the absolute purity, and infinite perfections of His being? So blinding is the radiance of His glory that the angels in heaven cover their eyes. So this word "saint" then simply means, literally, the saints, holy ones, or if you like, heroically virtuous ones. They are holy. But that raises a a dilemma for us because how is it possible for God to call us saints, holy ones, when, if we're honest with ourselves, we fall so short of His glory? When we are practically speaking, we are not heroically virtuous perfectly. Maybe we have moments. Maybe, maybe you can even say, we'll give, you know, we, we can say we, we live lives that are consistently reflective of that, but we're not perfectly holy. We're not perfectly righteous. We understand our, our sins of word, thought, and deed. We understand that we sin in so many ways. We understand that we don't do the things that God has told us to do. Like what? Like love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How many of us have done that perfectly every second of every day? I don't see any hands. That's good. <laughs> How many of us have loved our neighbor perfectly? Yeah, none of us have. And yet, we are called saints. Heroically virtuous ones. Holy ones. How? Well, the key words are found here in our text. Greet every saint where? In Christ Jesus. See? Everything that you are, And everything that you have is viewed through the lens of this spirit-wrought personal union with the person of Christ. And so, in and of myself, I'm not righteous and holy. And I have no right to be called a saint in and of myself. But that's what Christ, the only one who could ever be described as heroically virtuous, perfectly virtuous, perfectly holy, that's in fact what Jesus came to give us. Because, dear friends, without that, we stand condemned before the God that Isaiah saw seated on the throne, before whom the angels cried, holy, holy, holy. Without holiness, we stand condemned. Without perfect righteousness, we stand condemned before that holy God. That's why Isaiah, when he saw the exalted glory of the Lord seated on his throne, he doesn't jump up and down and shout, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes he, the right, humanly speaking, one of the the most righteous ones in Israel because he's the prophet of God, that his righteousness, as he would say later, before the, the bar of God's holiness and justice, is like what? Filthy rags. And you know, the term there for filthy rags is cleaned up for us. It has to do with A woman's menstrual cloth. That's what it is when we offer up our righteousness to God. He says, No. That's what we need. And so the gospel then is the good news of what? It's the good news of how God declares sinners, unrighteous, unholy sinners. To be saints, righteous and holy in Christ. I love what this Ephesians chapter one. I told Brother Timothy, I'm so excited. I gotta try not to get too excited. (laughs) Ephesians chapter one. I got the slide here. This is what Paul says. Paul says, going back, I started in verse four, but I'm gonna go back to verse three. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? In Christ, with, not some spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now verse 4, even as he chose us, where? In Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we should be what? Holy, Hagias. saints. In Christ. And blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of what? His glorious grace with which He blessed us. Where? In the beloved. In Christ. In who? In Christ. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Boy, we could just spend a year on that passage. Here's the idea. Before time even began, God the Father chose a vast multitude of hell-bound rebel sinners to the praise of His grace, not to the praise of our free will decision. And Christ came to redeem them by, Philippians 2 told us, by making himself nothing, by dying the death of the cross, where he who knew no sin became sin for us, and that he rose bodily from the dead so that all who by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in and by and because of Christ alone, are forgiven of all of their sins, past, present, and future, and are declared to be what? Saints. Saints. Holy ones, because the perfect holiness of the Holy One, the true and perfect saint, Jesus Christ, has been credited to our account. And that, dear friends, is the righteousness upon which we stand. Isn't that exciting? Amen. And so we are saints in Christ. That is your true identity. You are not what the world says you are. You're not what you tell yourself. You're not what the de- what the devil whispers in your ear. You are a saint in Christ and God is working in us to be what we are in Christ. Holy and righteous. And we are also brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says he uses brothers. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians uh, uh, one, he said that we were predestined for adoption. See, the only people who can be, pre- only people who need to be a chosen, uh, that we should be holy, are those who are sinners. And predestined for adoption, we have to be predestined for adoption because we were enemies of God. The scriptures tell us, but we're predestined for adoption that we who were His enemies could be called His children. And so God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, the only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, and we are now adopted sons and daughters of the King. We are the children of God now because of the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. And so, Christian, who are you? I, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, am a saint in Christ. I'm a holy one in Christ. I don't care what the devil tells me. And we are brothers in Christ. Brothers and sisters, family of God, this vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue, black, white, red, brown, Asian, African, European, all the family of God united to Christ and with one another in the Spirit. So rejoice in the family. And then we share as family, as brothers and sisters, Paul said earlier, you shared in my trouble. I was being pressed, but there was my brothers and sisters, the family of God from all over the world. We enter into each other's lives. We pray. We encourage. Not just here. With our family in China. With our family in Egypt. With our family in Nigeria. All over the world. Isn't that amazing? So when Satan tempts you to fall into sin, remember that you are a saint. You are a child of God who carries the family name of Christ. And so, 1 Peter 5.9, Peter says, resist Satan. Firm in your faith. You see, faith, you look away from yourself. You look away from anything else and you fix your entire gaze upon Christ and Him alone. It's upon Christ. That's the solid rock upon which we must stand. And as we heard yesterday at Presbytery, the drink from which the rock from which we must drink continually. And he says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See? United. So, first thing, there is our identity in Christ, and secondly, we see our intimate bond in Christ. Verses 21 through 22, we see this intimate bond is seen in four different greetings that are given to the church. Paul sends his greetings to them, right? And then Paul says the brothers that are with him, these are brothers that were probably, this is, he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, there's other believers, it seems, that are in this large place as well. Those brothers greet them as well. And then we see all the saints, he says, this refers to the church that's in Rome. You can read about that church in Rome in, in Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament. And then he says, especially those of Caesar's household. We'll get to that for a moment. But I want to look at this thing, this word here for greet, because this word for greet, it's more than just saying hi to someone. Hey, hey, tell everybody I said hi. right? Paul, make sure you tell them I said hi. That's really not the idea. The word here... Regreet is the idea of enfolding in one's arms. And it really goes back to the context. We go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, he talks about how he yearned for them with the love of Christ. And so I think we could paraphrase this. Paul is basically saying, listen, please give them a a holy embrace. Don't worry about social distancing. Give, give (laughs) Give a holy embrace. And let them know how much they are loved in Christ convey the love of Christ to them. That's the idea. Let's look a little closer at these greetings. First of all, notice he shows no partiality. There's no partiality. Paul says, verse 1, Paul says, greet some of the saints in Christ Jesus. Greet the really important saints in Christ Jesus. Greet the rich ones in Christ Jesus. Greet the the elders and the pat. No. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus every single Christian in the church is just as important as the other it's not just a select few and then there's so there's there be no favoritism among God's people that's important for us to understand because we know how apt we are to do just that we have a tendency to to size people up on the basis of their appearance we always want to put people in categories. And in churches, there, people have cliques. And, and, and leadership sometimes is placed in an unhealthy position, exalted to an unhealthy status. Paul says, no, greet every single one. The ground is level at the cross. And then we see the breadth of the bond. every Christian Paul was in contact with sends their, their greeting, sends their intimate love to every believer in Philippi. Everyone. He hits hits all, every facet he could possibly, everybody he's around, all of them send greetings to you. All of them want, want, want you to know how much you are loved in Christ. And as we do what we might call a sanctified reading between the lines, they were all aware of the faithfulness of this poor church. They all knew what the Philippians had done and how they had played such a major role in seeing the gospel spread far away in Rome, and many of them, no doubt, came to faith as a result of Paul's ministry to them, a ministry which was helped to be made possible by the gifts of this poor church, the Philippians, which means that they share in that fruit on the last day. They're a part of that, and so they desperately want the Philippians to know. And you can almost see them, Paul's you writing know, Make sure you let them know. Greet them for us. Especially the household of Caesar. We'll get to that in a moment. Then we see the oneness and solidarity in Christ here because of this. We see this bond. Despite not knowing each other. Some may have known each other because Philippi was a Roman colony that was comprised of retired military soldiers. So maybe maybe they did know some that did, but I would suspect that many didn't despite the fact that they don't know each other personally, despite any ethnic or cultural or economic, or language differences, they nevertheless have a mutual love for each other in Christ. And you see, dear friends, that is the beauty of the body of Christ. It is comprised of people from every conceivable background that are being knit together in Christ. And we are one in Christ. One. My identity is not Italian. My identity is Christ. All those other things are a distant second to being in Christ. And yes, it it refers to other churches as well. And in our day, it refers to different denominations. Baptist, Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, Pentecostal. Anybody who confesses the name of Christ, who has the true gospel, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are united with them around the essentials of the gospel. We stand side by side with them to see Christ proclaimed to the nations. We have to remember to stand upon the solid rock of the gospel, the main thing of the gospel. Does that mean that these other things that we believe are not important? No, it doesn't mean that. What we believe about baptism, what we believe about church government, what we believe about predestination and election and all those things are vitally important. But the main thing is the gospel, and every person who professes that God is triune, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that you cannot get the salvation on the basis of your works, but it's only through through, through God's grace and through faith in Christ, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we stand united with those who want to see that gospel go forward in the world. When you go overseas and you're in a place and you recognize where there's not many Christians and there's a Baptist person and there's a Lutheran person and there's a non-denominational person and you all have the one thing in common, Christ, you realize pretty quickly that's what we're united in. And so we stand shoulder to shoulder with all of our brothers and sisters around the world so long as they have the true Christ and are preaching the true gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, as we heard in our time of confession. You know, last week, what we see here, I think, is we, what we could call is this, I, I talked about the circle of gospel ministry, and this week I thought about that as, as the circle of, of Christian love, and I have a slide here for that, because I know how much you guys love my artwork. And I think, uh, I think it's, there it is, yeah. So you see here, my, my artwork's getting a little bit better, a little more crisp, I think. And I got, like, so we got the woman up top, the long hair, see, we've included, so we, you know, we we got bald people, the guy on the left, he's bald, we got some people, so we got, what do you have, Christ is at the center, right? And Christ now has shed his love, he's poured out his love within each of these persons, and each of these persons then take that love and are sharing that love with one another. A beautiful circle of Christian love that we have with one another. It all flows from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I love what this one quote says on the next slide. As we think about who we are as a church locally, our church here, but also how we're connected with other believers around the world, I love what this quote here from J.H. Bobbing says. He says, quote, All work, however costly and well organized, which is not rooted in a church that has found the secret of mutual love is in the long run powerless. Thank you, Dale, for sending me that quote. (laughs) Such a powerful thing. All work, however costly and well organized, which is not rooted in a church that that has found the secret of mutual love, is in the long run powerless. Didn't Jesus say? They will know you by your love for one another. That takes us to our third point here, our impact for Christ, verses 21 through 21. He mentions all of these groups now, right? You have all these different kinds of people. People in Philippi who have been saved by the gospel. People in Rome who have been saved by the gospel. People of Caesar's household who have been saved by the gospel. And what it testifies to is the mighty, saving, transforming power of the gospel. The gospel alone destroys every barrier and reaches every people group and unites them in Christ. And it really comes into focus here when Paul mentions these greetings from Caesar's household. Now, when we see Caesar's household, we might be thinking, well, you mean people, family, Caesar's family got converted? We don't know. Commentators think that really this is, what this is referring to, most likely, is to um, the servants and guards and government officials who would have been classified as part of Caesar's family. The point, though, that we need to see here is that the gospel was penetrating into the very heart of Rome, into the very halls of power within the Roman Empire. And what's ironic here is that Paul's ability to actually reach now into the very center of Rome, to have an impact and influence upon those who are in the halls of power, is owing in large measure to him being imprisoned in Rome. Because there he is, he's imprisoned to a guard, And so he's witnessing to these guards, and what does the guard do? Well, the Holy Spirit brings him the saving faith in Christ, and then he goes home, goes home to his wife, hi honey, how did it go today being chained to that guy, that that Jewish guy, the Apostle Paul, how did that go? Well, he told me about Jesus as the true king, not Caesar, and now how I have eternal life in Jesus, it's great! (laughs) So then he tells his wife, and his wife, and she gets converted, and then she goes and she, she gathers her lady friends together for tea and crumpets, and then they start talking about or figs or whatever it was, and, they, start, and they, they get converted, and then he goes back to work, and he's telling his buddies there, some mocking, some don't want anything to do with him, but others, they get converted, and they go, and they tell their friends. What you see here is, right, you see the circle of gospel love that's being shown by Christians and impacting others and you're seeing the gospel spread as each one influences people in their social network, all impacting people in their circle of love, in their relationships. And so what we see here in a a positive way is what we might call, we talk about all these viruses now. We see in a positive way the, 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 the virus of the gospel as people breathe out the air of Christ and they are confronted with Christ and him crucified and brought the faith in Christ. Now, some really point, great points of instruction here and in application for us is this, is that first of all, the gospel isn't about big events. It's about relational interactions. That's not to say that we shouldn't have programs, that we shouldn't have events. Yes. But the main focus, the main emphasis, the main thrust for evangelism and outreach Isn't programs, it's God's people. What's the outreach plan? The New Testament answer is simple Christian, go love your neighbor. It's as simple as that. And who's your neighbor? Well, your family, your co worker, your friends, your neighbors. And so you pray for them, you get to know them, you show hospitality, you have coffee, a meal. You, you're mindful of ways to serve them. You invite them to church. Did you know that most people who come to church come as, through a personal invitation from a believer? That's how most people come to a church. It's not through a big program. It's through you and me interacting with people and say, hey, I'd like to invite you to Olive Street Presbyterian Church sometime. And you give them our card, and then they, maybe they put it away. Some won't come, but some do. Most, most growth happens through invitations, not big programs. One simple program, love your neighbor, pray for them, know them, serve them, share with them, invite them. That's the big thing. And we see it here. This is what happened. People were interacting with each other and the gospel spread like wildfire. Paul's in prison. A couple of applications here for us in our modern day. You know, the Roman culture was depraved as it gets. They live in an authoritarian, under a, an authoritarian government. Caesar is Lord. And in that culture, the gospel was the most foolish and offensive thing imaginable. You're telling me about a crucified king? That's so ridiculous. That's foolish. For others, it was an offense. But that didn't stop our brothers and sisters. They kept preaching Jesus. And there's a huge lesson for us today, brothers and sisters. See, we look at things today in our culture. It's easy to get distressed, isn't it? We think about abortion on demand. We think about the rise of Marxism throughout the world and in our country. We think of the moral decay and insanity, outright moral insanity that I would say that has gripped our culture today. And we could be tempted to fall into despair. And we could be tempted to say, well, what's the best way to reach this culture? Well, Let's, maybe we need to just water down the gospel a little bit. Let's not talk, let's not call sin, sin. We'll just call it maybe mistakes. Let's just, we don't want to be offensive to people and drive them away. Let's not talk about what God says is right and wrong. Let's just talk about the love of Jesus And and all the great things you can have if you come to Jesus love, joy, and peace without ever pressing upon them the need to repent, without ever impressing upon them the holiness of God. Because we don't want to be called bigots or whatever else the case might be, we don't want to be offensive. But here's the the thing you all know the cross is an offense. The cross is an offense. And if you're going to take out the offense of the cross, then you don't have a gospel. There is no gospel without the offense of the cross. And so if we don't preach the cross, we haven't preached the gospel. If we haven't preached the gospel, what have we done? Nothing. No. Great harm. The people because they're going straight to hell because they haven't heard what they need to hear and what we've been commanded by God to share with them with gentleness and truth and in love. Will they hate me? Maybe. Will they throw people in prison? Yes. Will they behead people? Yes. But this is what we're called to share. The most unloving thing we can do is water down the message. If we love our neighbor, we'll give them the truth in Christ. So we might be tempted to do that. We might be tempted then, well, you know, we're having all these problems with the culture here. Let's turn to politics. Let's put our hope in politics. Now, I've said it before from this pulpit. I'm going to say it again. Our hope does not rest in politics. Caesar is not our hope. Christ is our hope. Yes, fight against policy that's morally repugnant and evil. That doesn't guarantee anything. The past 45 years has proven that, hasn't it? As we have voted time and again for people who say that they are against abortion, against the slaughter of innocent children, vote for me and we'll overturn that. Okay, you got my vote. And then what happens? Nothing. Our hope doesn't rest in politics. Doesn't rest in Caesar because the only thing that's going to that's keep a, a young lady from wanting to slaughter her innocent child, and to keep a person who's trapped in in homosexual lifestyle and transgender lifestyle, and for those who are who not just that but committing heterosexual sin, the only thing that's going to that's going to work is if their hearts and minds are changed. And the only thing that can change a person's heart and mind is not public policy; it's the gospel. It's Christ. And we are the ones who are the stewards of the gospel and are responsible for sharing that gospel with the world. And so our job isn't so much to transform the culture. Rather, it's to make disciples of the nations. And as people are brought to saving faith in Christ, we share with them the good news. We teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And then they go out now and they influence their circle of of people that they know. And then little by little the culture begins to change. we got to keep our eyes on the ball. It's Christ. You want to see people stop staring their children? Pray and preach Christ. You want to see people come out of the LGBTQ lifestyle? Pray and preach Christ. You want to see racial justice and unity? Don't adopt the racist theory of critical race theory which only divides in is outright heresy, preach Christ. That's what we need to do. And then we'll see, as we go into the culture, we'll see the yeast of the gospel move in. And we'll see, Now, the culture may not ever change. But we know that the Lord is at work to bring a multitude of sinners to saving faith in Christ. The year was 1630 and the Puritans were sailing for America. This whole thing about our impact for Christ comes into view. I hope I'm not called a white supremacist for having the audacity to refer to the 1630 Puritans who sailed for America, but I'll take my chances. In his work, A City Upon a Hill, section of a model of uh, Christian charity, John Winthrop spoke of a vision for a Christian community. And here's what he said. I got this quote on the slide. He says, quote, "We must knit together in this work as one man. We must rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community as members of the same body." Isn't that what it's all about? It's all about Christ and the gospel and being knit together. What a, that's the biblical vision of the church that Paul has laid out. We are being knit together as one man focused on our commission and the community of believers. And that commission can only be carried out as we are united in Christ. That takes us to the final point. We need our sustainment by the grace of Christ. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit, Paul says. Again, easy to breeze past, but it's packed, dear friends, with deep theology. Everything Paul points to here points to the exalted nature, nature of Jesus as truly God and truly man. The word grace and the titles Lord and Christ. Christ, anointed prophet, priest, and king. These all references divine nature. And then the word Jesus, of course, references his human nature. This is the eternal Son who from all eternity dwelled in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit in unapproachable light the one that Isaiah saw seated on the throne, that one humbled himself without divesting himself of his divine nature and became fully human in order to be the saint that we were supposed to be and then die on the cross as the sinner that we are to drink in the bitter cup of God's wrath for us. And now because we're in union with Jesus, we now have every spiritual blessing in Him. And we have this grace. This grace here is not saving grace, but sustaining grace. Whereby Christ empowers us to do what Paul has told us all throughout this letter. He's told us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's told us to have this Christ-like mindset of humility. He's told us to rejoice in the Lord always. He's told us not to be anxious about anything, but by everything, by prayer and petition, to make your requests known to God. He's told us, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We can't do any of that in our own strength. And so salvation from first to last is all of grace. I love this quote here on the slide from Danielle Munoz that really captures this. She says, Through the intricate workings of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we face each day with grace. Grace to live, grace to die to self, grace to persevere, grace to thrive, grace to stand, grace to serve, It is God's sustaining grace that not only saves us, but sanctifies us in every trial. It preserves us in the present, protects us from the past, and prepares us for eternity. Hallelujah and amen. It's ultimately the grace that enables me to say and to live out, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This world is not my home. What awaits me after this, after death, is the eternal glories of the promised land of heaven. And so as I bring this to a close, the question for you today is, are you a saint in Christ? And if you're not, please understand that instead of death being eternal gain, it's gonna be the gateway into eternal futility, eternal despair, eternal hopelessness, eternal loss. And so I I beg with you today. I do, I beg, I plead with you to turn to Christ as fast as you can. Flee. Leave your old life behind. Cry out to the Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. You are the Christ. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and make me a saint in you. Make me a part of this beautiful family of believers in Christ. And if you are, for the rest of us, let us turn away from what causes us to betray our family name of saint in Christ and child of God. Let us continue to grow in our love for one another and all of our brothers and sisters around the world who share our common faith. Let us continue to stand with them as we see the gospel go forward to the nations and let us constantly rejoice and rest in the grace of Christ that empowers us to live for Him and live for His glory. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for Your mercy toward us in Christ. We thank You for making us Your people. We thank You for declaring us forgiven of our sins and declaring us righteous in Christ, making us saints, making us Your children, and now giving us this incredible privilege, Lord, to go forward and to proclaim this glorious gospel to the world. Lord, give us the courage to stand upon Your Word, to not compromise it, but to declare it. And to declare it the right way, Lord. To declare it in gentleness, in love, and respect with everyone that You put in our path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.